This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radio Therapy. And this week we should be calling ourselves The Book Show because we have two famous authors in the studio talking about their latest instalments to hit the shelves. I've read both of them and I can tell you they are destined to become bestsellers. First up, we'll, we'll be speaking with Professor Stephen Ellen. See, it's even hard for me to get those words out, Stephen. By days, Steve is the Director of Psychosocial Oncology and Cancer Experience Research at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. By night, he is an author and on weekends, he hosts this very show. Don't tell anyone, but he is the voice behind Dr. Doolittle. Steve and his co-author Catherine Devaney launched their practical guide to mental health last week entitled Mental, Everything You Need to Know, Everything You Never Knew You Needed to Know About Mental Health. Sorry, I can't even read that. It really is like no other self-help book and it was probably the best book launch I've ever been to in my entire life. It was so much fun. That was great. Uh, Steve will be telling us all about the book, why it's different to other self-help books and uh, how he came to write it. Our next guest is Professor Peter Bruckner, and he is an internationally renowned sports physician. He's written more books on the topic than I've read, and uh, he's been the doctor to more sports teams than I can name. Massive amounts of experience and loads of research to back up his conclusions in his new book, <coughs> which and his new book is called Fat Lot of Good. It's about making simple changes in what you eat to, impu- to improve your well-being. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Challenging some of our long-held beliefs about food and diet, Peter will be explaining the science behind his advice. Nurse EpiPen has just returned from a six-week tour of Africa, sponsored by Radiotherapy International, and has lots of stories to share with us, all medically related, I'm sure. All this and the latest from the medical journals. So join me, Dr. Mal, practice for the next hour of Radiotherapy. Doctor, doctor, give me the news I got. Nurse EpiPen, I missed you the last couple of weeks. Oh, it's so good to be back. Well, no, I lie. I just lied because I had the best holiday um, that I've ever had. Instagram doesn't lie. No, Instagram. So I did put put up um, one or two pictures, but I was... Um, given the etiquette of Instagram. So you're not supposed to put up more than one picture per day. Because otherwise you bombard your... Yeah, and people get so bored with it. So I did... I was... I rationed myself to one every few days. But, um, yeah, how were they? Did you? Uh, We will get into your trip across... Well, we're... Just highlight the... the, the Mostly um, Tanzania, middle, m- middle central Africa. It looked magnificent. We'll talk about that. Okay. Professor Peter Bruckner, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. My pleasure. You have been with us before. I have. Yeah, greatly honoured to be back. Oh, <laughs> 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 We're honoured to have you. God, I'm a sucker. I had terrible. Yeah. Uh, we've got such august company in the studio. We've got two professors and us. And us. <laughs> <laughs> you will be talking about uh, your latest book. You've written a couple of books before, but this one... This one's kind of special. I, I really like it. Um, but we will uh, we will be speaking about that in a second. Professor Stephen Allen. Hello, Dr. Mel. <laughs> well, so you're, you're now channeling the non-do-little. Yes. By being very monotonous yes. and not cracking any jokes. I'm not cracking any jokes this morning. I'm speaking in... Oh, no, I'm back. Hey, so this is my first time ever on radiotherapy under my real name. Is it? Da-na-na-na. Really? This is the first time anyone's ever spoken to me. Normally I just get to sit in the corner, crack jokes, and all of a sudden I'm a guest. I feel honoured too. I feel honoured like Peter. To be, oh. uh, to be on this uh, August show? Yep. Hey, um, there are a few things I want to talk about. I was listening to some American public radio, as I do. Uh, I listen to Triple R and American public radio during my week. You're so diverse. I try to get two continents in <laughs> during my listening week. And I heard about this study. Oh, this is just amazing. So I am now reading from the uh, journal called Neuroradiology. It's the latest report that came out entitled, Should You Stop Wearing Neckties? Wearing a Necktie Reduces Cerebral Blood Flow. And it is by, I love these names, this is a German uh, group, Robin Ludecki, Thomas Lindner, Julia Forstenpointer, Ralph Barron, Olive Janssen and Jan Gutenmullen. 
Oh, yeah, yarn. Yeah, you know, the Jew, Jew, yeah, yeah, great, great group. Love them. And yeah, the, I read their stuff every week. <clears throat> and we know that neckties in hospitals have problems. Uh, Epi, you'd, you'd be all over this, the, the fomite issue. The fomite issue, which is um, things that carry bugs. So it can be on ties or you know, stethoscopes or keyboards or things like they have. There's been a recent... Things uh, that dangle especially yeah, and touch correct, the patient. and name tags. And now we've uh, at some uh, hospitals uh, lanyards are sort yep. of being phased out because they dangle over a patient, pick up the bugs. Yeah. So the question was: um, Do neckties? Is there another sort of nail in the coffin for neckties? And uh, in their abstract, they call <laughs> the necktie socially desirable strangulation. Catch so already setting it up in there. Sounds the, uh, like they're doing up their neckties <laughs> slightly too tight. Well, various studies uh, reading from the article uh, have shown that a, t- uh, a tight necktie may increase intraocular pressure. That's pressure in the eye, which is makes sense. May cause glaucoma. I yep. mean, I'm not saying it causes glaucoma, but it may be associated. That you know, fairly loose associations. But so they were wondering what would happen. Uh, to the blood flow to your brain, the cerebral blood flow. So what they do is they've got a couple of healthy young men. Uh, age Just 20, a couple. couple. Right. they got the like couple. Thirty young men are divided into two groups. Fifteen wore a necktie, winds are not, fairly tight, tight to the point of mild discomfort, and fifteen didn't. They then stuck them in an MRI scanner and looked at the, uh, the cerebral perfusion, that is the amount of blood going through their brain. <laughs> So what they found was pretty amazing. After tightening the necktie, cerebral blood flow decreased by 7.5% in the group with a Windsor knot on. 10% is a clinically significant amount where it starts to cause problems. But gee, 7.5%. Seven, yeah, I don't want 7.5% of my blood flow to my brain gone. <laughs> Mind you, I hate neckties, so any excuse not to wear one See, of the damn things. Both both you and I work tirelessly. Yeah, I haven't. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> so, oh, so, oh, so, oh, oh no, jeepers. What, what about you, Prof? Uh, yeah, I've... I've Dump the ties basically. I'm really annoyed though. I've got this wardrobe full of about 50 ties. You know, yeah, it just sits there. You know, know. People, people give you ties and, and yeah. so on. I wore a tie every day of my yeah. life basically uh, till probably you know five years ago, ten years ago, something like that. And what, uh, what, what made yeah. you stop wearing the tie? Um, well, it just didn't seem necessary anymore. You know, I mean. Uh, yeah, social changes. I reckon yeah. that you know yeah. it's become the norm now yeah. not to. Like I've That's always right. hated them. I don't like the f- tight feeling around my neck. And so even as a junior doctor, I'd only wear them if I knew I had to see my boss or something big. So I'd always have one in my office, and I'd just put it on if I had to. But then about ten years ago, there was a shift, and especially mm. when the fomite, the research came out around hospitals, and mm. the hospitals started having policies saying no ties, and still most people. There's still the odd person who wears a tie, but the vast majority now, if, if you wear a tie to a meeting at work, certainly the last five years, you, you're the odd one out. It's the really just the dapper guys. You know, there's a couple of really dapper physicians and surgeons who walk around with their bow ties bow and their tie. Yeah. And they have beautiful suits and everything. You know, they don't, t- you know, we turn up, Dr. Mal, we no, don't we, turn we, up we, in we've beautiful got a mate, suits. We've got a mate that's a cardiologist and he dresses so beautifully. And yes. um, my mother says he must be a very good doctor. And I said, why? Well, she goes, look at his suit. That's just beautiful. <laughs> Um, so what else they say in this study? So they, they said, yeah, yeah, look, you know, more research, da-da-da-da. But <clears throat> if you think about it, ties really are on the way out. Like they're, they're fomites, they collect bugs. Um, they may cause, uh, they may strangle you and stop the blood flow going to your head. And there's research which shows that patients actually aren't that keen on doctors having uh, uh, ties on. So my tie experience is as a schoolgirl. So what about school? So um, I, we didn't ever have ours very tight. In fact, the fashion was a loose, a loose fat yeah. knot. Yeah. But um, kids are still wearing them and their brains are really are needing to have some good... That is a really good point, Nurse Happy Ben. I wonder oh. if there's, like, uh, some funding for a study in uh, <laughs> school ties. And, you know, interestingly, it's pretty much... You know, there's been all this research that's come out recently saying all that mm. money that people pour into private schools does nothing that it doesn't actually benefit the kids. Now I'm figuring out why. It's because private schools are the ones that wear ties mostly. So it's been the money that they're pouring into their expensive computers and sports is being counteracted by, by their the strangling their kids. When, Go public. In fact, uh, um, I was about to call you Dr. Doolittle. Steve Allen <laughs> and I went to the same public high school. And uh, if we didn't have our tie done up at this public yeah. high school... Like yeah, we're at a fancy public high school, though, we where you had to wear ties in a suit. It was, yeah. was it a suit? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a great suit. Remember, like it was, you know, it was yeah, great pants and a jacket. But. I'm trying to wipe out some of those memories. Yeah. Three triple R.
Oh, this is going to be a good show. Now, Professor Allen, tell us, you've got this new book out. It's called Mental. It came out mm, probably about a couple of weeks ago. It's about, it's basically a self-help guide for families, uh, for individuals, for yep. non-doctors. Yep. Uh, about uh, pretty much everything in mental health, diagnoses, treatment, where to get help. There's a chapter called, or a section called How to Tell When Your Shrink is a Dud. <laughs> really. Clues your shrink is a dud. Clues your, sorry. Yeah. Um, tell me, what was the reason behind writing it? Well, you know, funnily enough, I've been, had this book in my mind since I was a registrar, a trainee psychiatrist. In fact, I even said to my boss once back in the day, you know, we say the same things over and over to patients every day. Why don't we just put them in a damn book? Mm. Because there's a million books around mental health, self-help, that if you look at, if you scan them, they're all on specific things. Mindfulness for depression. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're all, they're, there's very little that's broad. And there's really two books that I found in Australia over the last 10 years that are broad. And, um, and uh, both, and they're all written by doctors and they come across as very doctory. Yeah. And, uh, and But funnily enough, when I said it to my boss all those years ago, he said no, and then his foundation brought out one about a year later. I kid you not. Then it was, again, it was just written by doctors and it was, you know, that was 20, 30 years ago, obviously. Um, and so they're very doctory. And so I've had this in my head and I did a writing course with Catherine Devney, who's, you know, everyone probably knows Catherine around here. Um, she's a comedian and she's a writer. She's written about a dozen, 10 books. So, and she runs these things called Gunners Writing yeah. Masterclasses. Yeah. And uh, I'd been depressed. I'd had this period of depression. And one of the things I was doing at the time was writing to get everything out of my head because at night I just have all these ruminations that went over and over and over. So I started writing and I started enjoying it because previously I'd been quite a reluctant writer. Mm -hmm. And so uh, um, for various reasons I bought this course and decided to do it myself. So I went and did the course and then um, I asked Catherine to be my writing mentor. And she was, you know teasing out what is it that you like talking about and writing about and she started very much encouraging me to write this book and we spent a lot of time talking about mental health she's fascinated about it she's had psych problems just back up for a second what is quite exceptional um is that uh you do a lot of self-revelation like you talk about your own sort of struggles and as mm. you say during a breakup you uh you got kind of depressed yes yeah i'm, I'm big on so you know look for a couple of reasons one you know i've really changed my practice in the last 15 years and I do a lot of self-revelation not personal things with patients but I talk about stuff if they say you know I, I'm so I'm pretty comfortable with sharing and because I do the radio too as you know I share a lot of stuff so I'm pretty comfortable but I, but you'll see lots of it's been a gripe for a while that lots of people don't talk about mental illness obviously stigma is a real problem and it's a gripe of mine and others like you know me not just me that in particular professionals we're up there all day telling everyone share 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 we've got to break down stigma and we never do it ourselves mm. and the comment i make in the book you know you're far more likely to hear a footballer talk about their depression than a doctor yet we all know we all know and i still found that a real that was easily you know the chapter writing about my depression was easily the hardest chapter to write not i wasn't actually worried about my friends more my son, really. That was the one I really? thought, oh, well, one? yeah, my yeah. son's going to read it. And, you know, and yeah, anyway, so that's, that, that was a tricky chapter to write. Right. And then the rest of the book is written in this very colloquial form, like you're sitting down with somebody having a cup of coffee and you're chatting about stuff. Yeah. Um, is, has anybody done that before? Like, is there, has there been a book or a, a, even a t- t- TV program where it's kind of that colloquialness? I don't know. I think lots I of people do it and, and in different topics. I think it's quite yeah. common now that people share and write and talk about it in that way. It's just, you know, people's different styles. And, you know, getting back to Catherine, so she was pushing yep. me to write the book. <clears throat> and then, you know, funnily enough, one of my other mates, a director of psychiatry where you work, um, in fact, Effie, um, said to me, oh, you know, you can't, you're just going to repeat the same pattern. He said, words the effect if you're going to repeat the same pattern, another doctor writing a book, and, you know, you've got to get someone who's had mental illness to co-write it with you. It's just, it won't work otherwise. And Catherine had been pushing me to write the book, and, that, and I had walked out of his office. It's oh, so obvious. Catherine, she's had mental illness. She's seen psychologists multiple times. Oh. And I rang her up, and so that's how it came together, and that sort of changed the whole book, and I think that's what gave it that colloquial feel because Catherine and I had already spent months just mm. gossiping mm. over beers and... Um, coffees and with her family and stuff too about mental health and so to form that sort of um, vibe that became the book. Um, given that we've got um, uh, Peter Bruckner in the in the studio uh, um, and you mentioned about footballers talking about depression, um, Peter, why do you think that's uh, more accessible and why do you think footballers can talk more about it? Well, I think it's only a recent phenomenon. I mean, it's really only been the last... Uh what five years maybe, yeah. maybe 10 years i think uh 
Wayne Swartz was probably about the uh, the first to come out and uh, and he you know he was very gutsy I thought and uh, you know being pretty much the first and he was very honest and uh, I don't know whether you've ever heard him talk about it but it's really uh, very, uh, very emotional and and, and uh, heavy stuff but uh, you know very effective um, so I think he led the way and 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 I think. You know, everyone was a bit surprised that actually, uh, you know, he wasn't criticised for it at all. I mean, he was in fact got a lot of praise for it, and and, uh, and that sort of started a bit of a m- momentum for for other people to talk about not just mental illness, but uh, you know, drugs and alcohol problems and uh, and things like that. So it's, and I think there's a culture now within sporting teams of honesty, and a little bit like you were talking mm. about, Steve. You know, about uh, about opening up about uh, about yourselves. I mean. Uh, Richmond did this uh, this three H's thing last year, where they, uh, they every player uh, stood up in front of uh, their, their teammates and talked very honestly about some very sensitive things in their in their lives, and and, uh, and they were apparently very emotional sort of uh, things that they talked about. So so there is this sort of cult, you know, this sort of sporting culture thing that's very big these days, and honesty is is the basis of it. So mm. I think the combination of those things are, are, are you know really you know, allowed people really to come out and be honest, and people mm. respect them mm. uh, respect mm. them for it. But, well, what are the three H's? Oh, uh, oh sorry. <laughs> okay, uh, hero, uh, humour, and hardship. All right. Oh, so, I see. So yeah, three so parts of their life yeah. that illustrate that. Yeah. Who's your yeah. hero? Gives a hardship and yeah. yeah. And there's yes, there's wow. there's a fabulous book called Yellow and Black, uh, written by uh, Conrad uh, Marshall, the uh, the Age uh, writer, mm-hmm. and and he spent the whole year with with Richmond. There's lots of that genre of books, but this is the best one by far. Right. And it really talks a lot about the uh, the sort of a mental uh, side of uh, of things and the culture. And uh, I would just recommend that to. I mean, I know you know it's probably the third best book that's come out this year, Steve. I'd say. <laughs> 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 Is that a recent one, Yellow and Black? Well, at the end of last year. Right. So it's, all about, sports it's all about last like year's book. And you can, I'm chucking that down. You can sure. re- at the end of that book, you can really see, yeah, I understand why Richmond won the Premiership. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Steve, what's been the reaction to your self-revelation from other doctors in particular? Because I, well, you know, I, I know non-doctors would say, that's great and it's fantastic, but what about the profession? Are they a little bit prickly about it? You know, I was interested, and so I was keeping... In, I even opened up a little document on my phone to try and remember, you know, what people said. Yeah. And there was a few people who said things, to, you know, sort of disbelief, you know, things like, what, when were you depressed, that sort of stuff. Mm. But mostly it's been um, really good. You know, the commonest thing I've noted is people saying to me words to the effect of, I'm really glad that you wrote that, you know, and then they start talking about their own issues mm. and stuff, you know, often. Um, and there's a number of people that emailed me words to that effect too and, you know... It's it's been really positive. I haven't okay. seen any negative. Um, I haven't had any negative reactions really at all okay. so far. Um, Starting yeah, a trend. I don't right. know if I'm. Yeah. In fact, I, yeah, I think people just take it in their stride. If yeah. anything, I'm overlooking for you know wondering how what are people yeah, what are people going to think? You know, one of the things I was wondering when I was reading through the book, through all the different chapters about the disorders, depression, anxiety, psychosis, and then the treatments, um, you know, uh, tablets and talking therapies is. When you're talking colloquially, you have to strike the balance where you sound authoritative but not lectury. You know what I mean? So how yep. was that hard to write or was that, was that Catherine's job saying, wrapping you over the knuckles and saying, Stephen, no, you're sounding too much like a professor? We, there was a lot of that. Um, the two, you know, there was a lot of wrapping yeah. over the knuckles. But there was also... Um, so I started every chapter very much from when, you know, putting pen to paper, yep. I'd basically put my... Firstly, I'd just read stuff I've written before. That yep. would be the start. Yep. I'd read, you know, Psych Light, which yep. is a similar brief textbook. Yep. Um, written by with a Melbourne psychiatrist um, for medical students. So I'd read that. <laughs> then I'd read the uh, normally one of the websites, you know, an up to date sort of, you know, yeah. to give me the latest. And then I'd basically th- imagine myself sitting in the room with a patient because this is basically what we say to patients, what all of us say to patients. And so then I'd imagine, and then I'd just start writing this full conversation and, and go from there. What about references? I mean, because you say a lot of stuff in this, like a lot of stuff is very evidence based, but you don't. You don't have a lot of references? No, so, there's hardly any. So, I, I mean, I, how does the average person sort of read that and think, oh, yeah, that's bona fide, or they think, oh, yeah, that's just a lot of palaver? I think it's hard. And, yeah. I, and we thought a lot about that because if we filled it up with references, I've read a lot of books with references, mm. and it breaks the flow. Mm. So some people have them in footnotes, some people mm. have them at the back, some people have the numbers, and you can't help checking things at times, mm. and it break, breaks the flow. So in the essence, this in the end, decided, look, we'll reference the stuff we need to reference, obviously, like tables that we've used and stuff like that. But um, otherwise, um, 
it's up to you. If you don't want, like the information, we encourage you to check it. And we say constantly, it's the beginning of a conversation, this is not the definitive. Now, obviously, I've been practising psychiatry for 30 years and, mm. you know, I work at Melbourne Uni and at Peter Mac and at the Alfred, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the knowledge is pretty good mm. and I double-checked everything. But I decided, like, the editor actually said to me in the drugs chapter, you know, oh, you've got 5% of people have tried this and 4% have tried that. Don't we need to reference it? And it would have been, you know, and I looked at it because I'd got it all off the Australian government websites. Yeah. Um, it would have been a couple of pages of links and I thought, felt bad on the one hand, but on the other hand, I reminded myself that when we're in, the, in a consulting room with a patient... You don't have a reference, ...and a patient yeah. says to me, yeah. tell me about um, heroin use, and I start talking and I tell them those things. I don't say, um, you know, 5% of people in Australia have tried opiates and say... Um, government website um you know .gov.au uh, um so i decided and i feel and i still feel bad about that but i just felt it was going to clog the book down it's very antithetical to a lot of uh doctor writing mm. um is is to not feel compelled to, to put down a i felt very nervous when this book came out i had a panic attack on the day <laughs> i seriously did i woke up at 5 30 a.m on the day it was released on the 2nd of july it came out a couple of there was some advanced releases but oh. on the 2nd of july i honestly woke up with a panic attack and i start and i made a list of all the things people are going to go mad at and started making dot points of... And that one of them was people are going to go mad that we didn't reference it adequately. But, you know, that's one of the features of anxiety, isn't it? All the things that you worry about don't happen. The things that you don't worry about are usually the things that happen and you're unprepared for them, so you handle them anyway. Um, what do you reckon are some of the most controversial uh, things you've said in the book, quite apart from your own sort of self-revelation? <laughs> Um, well, we're very honest that not everyone's good at their job. We talk about how some GPs are fantastic, some aren't. We talk about how some psychiatrists are fantastic, some aren't. Psychologists, social workers, counsellors, everything. We try and be super honest, try and be super honest about medications and stuff. Like, we give the information, but, you know, like I say, I prefer psychotherapy. That's what I went for when I got depressed. Um, talking, yeah. Um, yeah, talking therapies. And uh, so we... Um, some of that, you know, I think some of those things like close your shrink as a dud. Tell, tell, oh. tell us about that. What, what are some of the, can you remember oh God, some of the things me to about... remember. But it was basically things like the ones who have a bit of a, um, a God complex. You know, there's a lot of therapists around who, you know, act like they're modern day priests and can see into your head. They can't. Um, I was telling you about people who charge too much. There's not, a, there's lots of strong evidence that there's a poor relationship in medicine more than almost any industry about um, the relationship between how much people charge and how good they are um i was warning people of that that i, I was I, I i knew somebody who put up his prices because he said look i just can't see this many people and he got more referrals yeah because people think that yeah. well, the amount you charge no is a correlation to how yeah. good you it's are it's been studied many yeah. times people who are too fast is my biggest gripe you know if you can make a diagnosis in a half an hour in psychiatry you're kidding yourself and you're kidding your patients and a lot do i hear it all the time i took my child along and i came out half an hour later and i here's my medications for his adhd no, it's too quick. Um, just think, I'm not saying it's always wrong. I'm saying clues, you shrink as a dud. Um, what else did I have in there? I can't remember the other stuff. Yep. Yeah. So, so um, one of the things that I've understood in the past is to shop around and see if, you, see if you've got that fit with that person. Yeah. Because I you need t- that incredible yeah. dependency and relationship to open up. Mm. Is, does that, is that something you mention in the book? Yeah, we talk a lot about how you choose someone you see and how uh, and all the tricks to it. So, yeah, you try and get a recommendation first, then you normally have a phone conversation first. Most people do that. Or sometimes for a psychiatrist, not, but nearly all psychologists and counsellors and social workers do. And so you have a convo, you suss out whether they do your sort of work. Um, and that's what I did when I saw a psychologist. You know, I, I rang around, found someone was recommended. You have a conversation, then you go along and we make a big point. You've got to give them a couple of sessions because also another thing that sort of counter- counteracts it a bit, sometimes you start backing out of therapy um, just at times when things are about to happen, sort of subconsciously. It's, I don't know if it's like a protective mechanism or something. Mm. So, we, but we, yeah, we go into a lot of the details about those sorts of things and tricks and tips and we encourage... Because we encourage people to see their GPs because GPs often know the good people in the area and they can often... They often know you really well yeah. and they know the people in the area, so they'll give you a good recommendation. But stuff like that we covered. And, and being a good patient, you know, sort of guarding a few of your secrets before you can feel confident to release that information that's been 
Yeah, you know? so in the first section of the... The first section of the book's all about, you know, what is mental health and all that sort of stuff, and there's a chapter there on um, the first time you see a shrink. And we talk about how, um, you know, the more you'll think about... You, everyone does. You think about it the night before, before you go, thinking how much are you going to tell? And we point out that you don't have to tell everything the first time. Relationships build slowly, and the shrink knows that. Good shrinks know that, and they're not going to push you beyond your comfort zone, and they'll let it come out over a few sessions. But nevertheless, you know, so you be as brave as you can, but don't feel that you have to be 100% brave on day one. I particularly like your DIY chapter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the chapter... This is the chapter where you put... Do it yourself, by the way. Do it yourself, DIY. It's kind of like self-help. It's stuff that hasn't been thoroughly researched nor evidence-based. So this was... Yeah, this was just a collection of ideas of things that Catherine and I have seen people say has helped them. Just Mm -hmm. to throw ideas out there. This is the non-evidence-based stuff entirely, and that's acknowledged up front. So it's stuff like, um, you know, gardening, um, dancing. Although gardening's got a lot of evidence. Yeah, yeah, dancing too. Yep. Uh, Cooking. Uh, Is exercise in there? Yeah, of course. But exercises in the um, evidence-based yeah. chapters. Oh, right. You know, good. Heaps of evidence. You know, the basis yeah, good, of, good, um, good, good. The basis of um, psychological first aid. Um, good sleep, good nutrition, good exercise, attention to relationships and attention to stress. And so that's covered heaps in other chapters. Glad you popped in good nutrition. I oh, know. I did that on purpose. I was, I was, about, I, I, I was, I was about to say something. Yeah. <laughs> it is very clearly in there. You, I promise you. Yeah. How about setting up that goal? That was beautifully done, uh, Professor Ellen. We've Look, other things that you've got here, I've got to mention it because I saw it during the launch. Other things in the DIY section. Uh, do something with your hands. Um, have a bath. Uh, sex toys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what sex toys? Well, what we're trying to do there is we're trying oh, to just encourage people. Most a lot of people will when they're depressed. They they people will still they might have sex a lot, but they'll still masturbate yeah. a lot because it's a relief yeah. from yeah. Um, the pain of depression. Yeah. And so we're just encouraging people to think broadly. And you know you might be having trouble masturbating if you're depressed, males and females. So sex toys might give you a bit of a um, a tip. And a lot of people do say that. And so even though there's we don't have any nice studies on it, um, we we wanted to chuck lots of stuff like that in. And the, yeah, I can see a research study happening, <laughs> happening just around that. <laughs> I'm going to start um, research. <laughs> um, who do you reckon? I mean, who's it aimed at in terms of demographics? It's 100 percent aimed at the general public. Yeah, so we aimed so. at the, our goal was people who have had a mental illness, people who are supporting people with a mental illness, and amateur shrinks. There's a lot of people out there who you know love shrinkery, and so we aimed it at them shrinkery. as well. Shrinkery. That should be yeah. the name of your next book. Shrinkery. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I I have a friend who said to me that their daughter's been depressed and um, well, they felt they wanted to support her. Mm. So should they go to a psychologist and get some help to support their family member that they love? Because they don't ever feel that they are saying the right things, doing the right things. You know, is that a... Do you mention that or we've got is a that... Few, we've got a number of sections covering that. Pretty Lovely. much in every disorder, we've got a section of how you support someone with psychosis, Lovely. how you support someone with drugs, and we go through all those tips. And one of the main things... We've got a... It's like literally about five pages of tips around this because that's one of the biggest phone calls I get to. You know, my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife, they've got some problem, what do I do? And so, um, you know, we talk about the main thing of arming yourself with information, not getting put off when they're not um, being... When they're not taking the bait, how to offer the bait, with how to um, balance being helpful versus intrusive. Um, we talk a lot about how um, how you can do a lot of the research and help people for them and so just present, them, you know, because if people are unwell, it's hard for them to do the research about what to do. So, yeah, we think that's super important too. That's great. Yeah. I've just got one other question, um, Steve. In the paper on Thursday there was um, a story about it's the, it, the headline was Candid Message for Friends of Vulnerable. Did you see that? No, I didn't. And one of the things that they, they pointed out was the do's and don'ts and one of the things that they said was if you're worried about a, a, a dear friend or a loved one it that they should feel confident to ask are you having thoughts about suicide yeah we covered that too i didn't see that article but we covered that in the book and you think you think uh, um somebody could ask that and know how to handle the answer well i would i think if you're going to ask i, I think you should if if in doubt about how to ask something 
ask it anyway because it'll start the conversation and then you can sort it out from there. But if you are really worried, it is a good idea just to have, you know, a little bit of a read about some of the tips and tricks. We encourage also in the book people to ask. We talk about how up until a couple of decades ago the standard thing was not to ask and to keep it, um, you know, to people were scared that if you asked about um, serious problems you might trigger ideas. Um, And uh, we talk about how we get how that's not the case these days and how to ask and how to be thoughtful and how to prepare yourself and stuff like that. So that it is a really challenging and hard question. Top seller, I can tell you right now I've got 20 friends I can sell this to. (laughs) Fantastic stuff. You're going to stay with us. By the way, if you... um uh, are worried about crises or suicidal that sort of um, uh, those sorts of issues the lifeline number is one three one 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 four lifeline uh, they've also got a website www.lifeline.org.au you are listening to a podcast from community radio three triple r fm in melbourne australia you are listening to radio therapy in the studio we have the delightful the wonderful epipen <sighs> Good morning. I'm still here. Hello, everybody. Breathlessly. We have <laughs> Professor Peter Bruckner. Hi, guys. And Doolittle Slash, Professor Stephen Allen. Buongiorno, Dr. Mel Pratchett. Yeah, I just realised we haven't been on the same show for a long time. No, we used to be exclusively on the same, same show. And then you got your own show, and now yeah. you're in TV and radio and all over the shop. Probably have your own movie pretty soon. But I've forgotten, you speak You speak really, like, there's so much information when you speak. I have and to I, slow I, down, don't I? Well, no, no, that wasn't a criticism. 15 years on the radio and I it, still speak It wasn't a criticism, I think. Because <laughs> I'm still thinking after you finish speaking, wow, that point, that point, that point, that point. Fantastic. Yeah. Our next book is written by Professor Peter Bruckner. It's called, I love this title, Peter, A Fat Lot of Good. Um, and it came out, when did it come out? A couple uh, months two ago? months ago, yeah. 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 Um, and you very kindly, um, <laughs> I've got to say, Peter said, oh, I'll send you two copies to have a read, Mal. And you you, um, you posted two copies to my office. And it was one of those um, uh, Australia Post bags that have got lots of fluff around them. And I ripped it open and this plume <laughs> of fluff went over oh, the entire dear, office. Sorry. It was like that um, that insurance ad on TV, you know, the guys picking gold stars <laughs> off, off places the whole week. Anyway, um, great read, really interesting. Again, self-revelation right up the front of the book. Tell us about your experience right up the front of the book. Yeah, well, look, uh, like most doctors, I, I knew nothing about nutrition. And, um, <laughs> no, no, I mean, no, all jokes aside, we don't, we don't uh, I mean, you know, did, so you get, did you get a single lecture on nutrition in your medical course? I didn't. No, I don't recall one. Uh, that, obviously, we did medicine yeah. some time ago, but I don't think things have changed that much. So, um, so, so this all started uh, very briefly. This all started six years ago. I just turned uh, 60. I was living in uh, Liverpool. I was working for the Liverpool Football Club then. And, uh, you know, if people had said, uh, you know, are you well? I'd have said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm healthy, I'm fit and healthy, I'm an active 60-year-old who uh, is on a good diet, so I thought, you know, low-fat, 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 you know, yeah. this, low-fat, that. Uh, I exercised regularly, uh, my blood sugar was good, my cholesterol and so on was, was okay. Um, but the reality was I was actually overweight, borderline obese, um, and like many middle-aged uh, men, I still consider 60 middle-aged, many um, <laughs> middle-aged men... It's the I'd, new black. I'd... Uh, <laughs> I'd probably put on half a kilogram a year for 30 years to the point where I was... Oh, that's oh, his man. bones creaking. No, that's right. Now 66. So I'm, so I'm now old age, not middle age. So I'd put on half a kilogram a year for 30 years. So I was probably 15, you know, 15 kilograms overweight. Yeah. I was on that borderline overweight obese according to your BMI, which is the, the yeah. way we, we measure it. Um, I had high triglycerides in, in my blood. Uh, I had a thing called a fatty liver, and I'd had that for 10 years uh, on blood tests. Right. And like a typical doctor, I'd completely ignored it. And in fact, I'd pushed it. I'd completely forgotten about it, which yeah. is, you know, really weird. But uh, I'd had three previous blood tests over 10 years that showed that I had this fatty liver. And fatty liver is a common disease that is a precursor to diabetes and, and all that sort of stuff. We won't go into that. But so I wasn't really as healthy as I, as I you know, thought. And at that age, my father had developed type 2 diabetes and that had had disastrous consequences for him. And I just want to live with that for, you know, the last 20 years of his life. And I was pretty determined. I didn't want to go down that track. So mm. I, was, I had that in the back of my mind. I don't want to go to get type 2 diabetes. Mm. And around that time, one of my colleagues, um, suddenly, sort of, who'd been a big advocate of uh, lots of eating lots of carbs because mm. he was an athlete, um, suddenly came out and said, "No, no, no, I was wrong. Uh, that carbs are actually the problem, and that uh, fat is not as bad as we we thought it was." Mm. And he switched from the traditional low fat, 
lots of carb sort of diet to the other way around, so low carb, high fat. Mm. And he'd had he'd reversed his type two diabetes, he'd lost weight, he felt fantastic, and uh, so he came out and sort of uh, said that. And I thought, oh boy, that's you know that's a bit radical, you know. But it prompted because you know he was a guy I admire. It prompted me to start reading, and so mm. I read a book called Good Calories, Bad Calories by. A, not a doctor, by a science journalist called Gary Taubes in the New York Times. And this book just blew me away. It just, uh, it not only sort of gave the arguments about why this low-carb uh, diet was better than the low-fat diet, it talked about the politics of how 30 years ago there were sort of two schools of thought, that the low-sugar, low-carb mm. school of thought, uh, led by a guy called John Yudkin in, in the UK, and then there was the low-fat argument led by a guy called Ansel Keys in, in America. Mm-hmm. And this book sort of talked about how the low-fat movement won out for reasons that had nothing to do with science, but everything to do with money, politics, the US Department of Agriculture, you know, grain growers in America and all that sort of stuff. And so all of a sudden, the whole of Western society was on this experiment, basically, of low-fat eating mm. for the last 30 or 40 years. And that experiment has been an absolute disaster because disaster? we've just got fatter and sicker yeah. over yeah. 30 years. So so I read this book and I, you know, I remember it you know, really disturbed me. I mean, I'd put it down every night and say, no, no, we couldn't have got this, you know, we couldn't <laughs> have got this wrong. I mean, this is, everyone's doing this, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and I, so I started reading more and more and I read more articles and more books and, and just more and more I realised maybe we're wrong. So then I decided, well, you know, we're all scientists, we're doctors. Mm-hmm. It was time for, our, time for some research. Mm-hmm. And we also know that N equals 1 experiments are a waste of time, except when the one is you, in which case that becomes very rough. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> then we love it. So I decided it was time for an N equals 1 experiment. So on day one, got all my bloods done, weighed myself, everything like that, went on a low-carb diet. So basically I stopped eating um, anything with sugar, uh, but all the, uh, the starchy things as well, bread, rice, pasta, potatoes, that sort of stuff, it's fruit juice. Um, yeah, but which was my diet, basically. Yeah. I was going to say, and that's an average weekend for me. Exactly. And I replaced that with basically the way that my grandparents would have eaten, you know, sort of back to the old meat and three veg and, and eggs and, and yeah. uh, milk and cre- full-fat cream and butter instead of margarine and back to that, you know, sort of 1950s type diabetes uh, that, I, that I sort of grew up with. And... Um, and so I did that for, for three months. And the first thing I noticed was almost from day one, I stopped being hungry. So instead of being, you know, getting up in the morning, having your muesli, <clears> you know, at 8 o'clock, and then by 11 o'clock thinking, God, it must be time for lunch now, you mm-hmm. know, I stopped being hungry. So I went down to eating two meals a day. Instead of eating three meals and three snacks a day, I was eating two meals a day. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. Because you just weren't getting hungry. I was not hungry. Yeah. yeah. I decided I was going to eat when I was hungry, you know, not just yeah, eat for the yeah. sake of it and so on. That was the first thing. Second thing I noticed was... Um, Every week I weighed myself. And, you know, the first week I lost, you know, a kilogram and a half. And so I thought, oh, that's just, you know, water and, you know, that sort of stuff, fluid and things. The next week, a kilogram. So I lost 13 kilograms in 13 weeks. It was unbelievable. Every week I'd just get on the scales and it'd be another kilogram off. I was feeling fantastic. I wasn't hungry. I was enjoying my food. My exercise capacity improved. That was going to be my question too because – yeah, how do you then fuel uh, your exercise if you're not getting those carbs? Fats. Fats are very good. Unless you're really high-intensity yeah. exercise, okay, which I'm, I'm not. Obviously, yeah. I'm just, you know, jogging and, or on a bike yeah. or whatever like that. Fats are a very good fuel okay. because you've got lots of them. Yeah. You know, you don't run out after two hours the way you do with, with carbs, you right. know, and, and, and hit the wall, so to yeah. speak. You can go forever at a, at a moderate intensity. Uh, as I said, you know, don't – you can't expect to sort of, uh, you know, sprint, if you like, uh, on, on, on fats. But you can do just about anything else. So that was your personal revelation. And then you went on to do a whole lot of research. And I, I, I was reading about it. And you, you kind of present some of the evidence. And tell us about insulin, insulin resistance and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, it seems that, you know, insulin is really important in this whole uh, fat thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically what happens if you have carbs? So uh, carbohydrates basically break down to, to sugar, to glucose, right. okay? So you get a, you eat some carbs, you get some glucose in your, in your stomach, it gets absorbed, and as a result you secrete insulin, which is a, a hormone that uh, is secreted by the pancreas to sort of regulate your, your blood, blood glucose. And, uh, and that will move uh, sugar into the, uh, the liver and the muscles, right. um, but if there's some left over, insulin is a fat-forming hormone. So basically, any excess carbohydrates gets gets converted into fat. So if you don't need them for exercise or whatever, that insulin pushes yeah. the sugar into your body, into your cells, and it's made into fat. Made into fat, yeah, right. through through the liver. Yeah, it's a complicated thing, but that that's how it yep. uh, that's how it works. And uh, 
And then after a while, so if you're having a high carbohydrate sort of high sugar diet for years and years and years, after a while you sort of your, your pancreas you know gets a bit tired, you know, and and it doesn't uh, it, it requires more insulin all the time. It's a little bit like you know you need more alcohol to get drunk, and you get more more of everything. You know you become resistant to the effect of insulin, so you need more and more insulin to drive this uh, this glucose. And the insulin has all of its negative effects with forming forming fat. So, mm. you know, after a, after a while, we if with a high carbohydrate diet, we all become insulin resistant, or many of us mm. become mm. insulin resistant, and that, that's what happens in your sort of thirties and forties when you start getting your gut, you know, your paunch, and uh, your middle age spread, and so on. That's because we're becoming insulin resistant, and insulin resistance is the precursor to type two diabetes and to fatty liver, and and then. That ultimately leads on to cardiovascular disease and a whole range of disease, including some mental illness. There's mm. interesting stuff on that too. But, um, you know, there, there's... Uh, so insulin resistance is sort of the, the underlying factor behind a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of disease. And, and so, so you're uh, promoting that we should be switching from carbs to fats. To, fats. to good fats. To good yeah. fats, which we'll talk yeah. about in a second. Isn't this what uh, Pritikin did like years ago? Is that right? No, or? Pritikin was really low fat. It was Atkins. Oh, Atkins. Atkins. Sorry, Atkins. Yeah, oh, yeah, Atkins. Yeah, yeah. This is not that dissimilar yeah. to Atkins. Atkins was was big on protein when we're just normal protein. We're not yeah. sort of uh, over protein. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's quite similar to the, to the Atkins diet, and then the Atkins diet works. Yeah, it's it incredibly yeah. effective. It really is. Okay, so tell me about your five golden rules. Right. Well, the first one is uh, the first one is uh, is reduce sugar. Right. So that's that's pretty. I think people get sugar now. I mean, uh, but you know, the, the other thing is, I mean, the average Australian has about fifteen teaspoons of added sugar a day. See, when I read that, I couldn't believe it. Oh, it's phenomenal oh, when you that, say I how can't much. Believe sugar. That. Fifteen teaspoons. That's, that's of, added yeah. sugar. That's not yeah. just oh, sugar in fruit and, and and dairy and so on. That's added sugar. But when you think about it, you know, a small bottle of Coke has uh, has twelve you know teaspoons of sugar in it. What about so, sweeteners? I know I don't want to sidetrack you, but yes. are you anti-sweeteners too? Yeah, look, sweeteners are marginally better than sugar, but not a lot. Right, uh, They've enough. got a whole lot of issues. They still stimulate insulin yeah. response, and they, cont- they maintain our addiction to sweetness. And yeah. one of the things you've got to do with all this is is become less addicted to sweet. And the food industry is very clever at, at you know ramping up. The interesting thing is that 80% of processed foods, or packaged foods, have added sugar in them. That we don't know about. It's often you don't have sugar on the label, but yeah. you'll have some other name that is sugar. Look, when uh, I when I saw that fifteen teaspoons, I thought that was a typo. <laughs> and then and then my daughter, uh, who's fifteen years old, just to mm-hmm. just to give you an idea of the uh, the literacy that a lot of young people have, she said, "Dad, even if you have these sweeteners in in, in a Coke, like the, mm-hmm. it still Coke provokes too. an insulin that's right response." Yeah. I said, "No, why? No, I, I'm a doctor. You're a, <laughs> then, of course, go to bed. Yeah. Yeah. No TV for you. No Coke for you. No, she's she's very <laughs> so good. So, so cutting rules. back on uh, yeah. on sugar is is really uh, really important. Yeah. So there's the big thing is, is sugar sweetened drinks, obviously, yeah. uh, soft drinks and so on, but Fruit juice. Fruit juice is full of sugar. Now, we've always grown up saying fruit juice is healthy, Mm. you know, but in fact uh, what they do is basically take most of the goodness out of the fruit and just leave you with sugar and water. And uh, so you'd be much better off, you know, having an apple Mm. and a glass of water than having a a glass of apple juice because, uh, you know, all the the fibre and all the goodness have been taken out of there. And whilst we're on that, I don't want to distract you too much, fructose and sucrose, is because fructose is the... It's part of sucrose, half of sucrose. So when we have fructose, like in a fruit, is that better or worse? Worse than having dextrose or well, sugar. that's a lot of argument about that. But fructose is is the thing that affects your liver. That's what causes the fatty liver. Ah, right. Uh, and so okay. that's converted to fat in, in the liver. So fructose is not great. Okay, no, cool. No, so. Okay, so sugar is is a big uh, a big thing. As I said, there's sugar everywhere. That's you know we're we're in the middle of a sugar demic we call mm. it, and uh, we've actually started a, a campaign called Sugar by Half to try and reduce the amount of sugar added sugar by by a half because the World Health Organization recommends six teaspoons a day is the ideal amount. Where you know we're somewhere 14, 15, 16 a day. I mean, my maths was never perfect, but that's about half. But teenagers are having you know 20, 25, even yeah, you know, more yeah. than that. I mean, you've only got to have a couple of uh, cans of Coke, and you're, yeah. you're way of. Yeah. Most people are over their fourteen teaspoons of added sugar by by the end of breakfast. You know, you have uh, you can imagine if you have uh, a glass of fruit juice, you have um, one of those fruit yogurts, mm. uh, you have some cereal, you know, mm. which shouldn't be called cereal; it could be called sugar. It's so sugar with a little bit of cereal, uh, and uh, and then you might have a uh, toast and jam, lots of uh, sugar in the jam, and then uh, a cup of tea with two sugars. So you're that's about uh, thirty teaspoons of sugar before you before you left home. See, I'm, I'm laughing because I remember there was a Simpson episode where uh, Krusty the Clown had Krusty Pops, and the advertising line was more sugar than sugar. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, cereals are unbelievable. I mean, yeah. And really also, good. 
and also when you say added sugar, I was conceptualising a teaspoon and you sprinkle it on stuff. Where it's this is no, all secretive yeah, is embedded in uh, everyday if food. If you look at the uh, the ingredients in, in you know packaged food, you know I have to wear my glasses now at the supermarket because you know I have to look at all the uh, ingredients <laughs> and stuff. And uh, you know they they've invariably got about twenty different ingredients. I mean, what food mm. needs twenty ingredients for yeah. a start? You know, and uh, so our big thing is, is to basically eat real food. You know, there's a great expression, JERF, J E R F, just eat real food. Mm. And if you eat real food and avoid Processed foods mm. and sugars and processed foods, you're going to be a whole lot better yeah. off. So that's uh, that's really the underlying key. So the second, after cutting back on sugar, the second thing is uh, veg, no vegetable oils. Now, uh, no vegetable no oils. Vegetable the vegetables oils. are good. Uh, yeah. Well, these things, this, they're very clever because these things are not vegetable oils at all. There's no vegetables in them. They're seed oils. But vegetable sounds much healthier than seed, so we'll call them vegetable oils. So they're all soybean oil and corn oil and. Uh, uh, safflower and sunflower mm. and all these uh, things that when they're heated, they become oxidised and they they form uh, aldehydes and all sorts of uh, nasty things. And so we've been cooking with them. You know, we were told 30 years ago to stop cooking with butter and lard mm. and, and, yeah. and so on and to cook with these. These were originally uh, for cleaning, cleaners. These vegetable oils, as they're called, uh, seed oils, were uh, brought out about 100 years ago as cleaning products. And then someone had the bright idea of... Uh, of of uh, making them into into food, mm-hmm. and uh, and if you if you knew what these the process that these foods went through or these oils went through, you would never touch them. It's unbelievable. So, so what do we, yeah, what do we yeah. use instead? So we use uh, we use butter or lard or we use olive oil or uh, <laughs> olive oil. coconut olive oil. oil, lard. Yeah, nothing wrong with lard. Lard, you know, our grandparents had it right. You know, lard and beef tallow and all those sorts of things that they used to. But I, I cook in butter. I mean, uh, butter is fantastic. Yeah, right. You know, if there's one. Thing that in, in 50 years' time, people are going to look back and say, you know, this was crazy. What, what were these people doing? And the single craziest thing was to replace butter, a natural animal fat, with margarine, margarine yeah. which is this chemical concoction <laughs> that shouldn't even be called food. It's got artificial flavour, artificial colouring, artificial everything else. It goes through this ridiculous process. And it, and it tastes horrible as well. So, you know, why on earth did, did we as, as a whole Western society drop butter for margarine? <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Peter, we were talking about the top five things to do to improve your diet. One, get rid of sugar. Two, use lard and butter. Oh, avoid avoid these, these heated vegetable oils. Okay. Yeah. But you were happy with olive oil. Olive oil is good, yeah. yeah. Olive oh, oil is a different great. fat. It's, it's a monounsaturated fat rather than a polyunsaturated fat. Hey, what about oil. coconut oil? Coconut oil is good. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's damned because of, because people think sa- people are very afraid of saturated fat. Right. But uh, most saturated fat is good. See, yeah. I changed to peanut oil, but I yeah. changed because um, it has a higher burning temperature or something, yeah, yeah. and I don't like smoke in my apartment. That was the actual reason mm. I changed. Mm. Is that all right? Yeah. Peanut oil is uh, not quite as good. In the middle. So, right. yeah, it's, it's not, not great. Uh, avocado oil is good. Uh, macadamia oil is good. Oh, yeah. um, olive oil... But uh, as I said, I, I, I cook in butter, you know. Right. That's why my, you know, grandparents used to cook probably, yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so uh, let's reduce sugar. Let's avoid these uh, vegetable oils or seed oils, as they should be called. Uh, I've covered the next two is eat real food. So, jerf, just eat real food and avoid processed foods. It's basically, you know, processed foods are, uh, are full of sugar, um, Grains and, uh, and and these vegetable oils. So that's not a great combination. You know, and the funny thing is, of course, real foods are much cheaper, <laughs> except they require going to the market, and there's not that many grocers around these days. You go to the supermarket, but and it's so much about about um, urban planning too. If you have uh, food outlets, not food deserts, you got a food outlet, so you can actually pick up some veggies or whatever on your way home from work, and you get fresh veggies every day, rather than the supermarkets ten kilometres away, and you got to go there and get like three weeks worth, and a lot of it's frozen or whatever. Mm. Makes it harder. My yeah. observation too, though, is lately the processed world has really got their prices down. It's made it hard. Oh, you can buy so many so things in yep, the supermarket yep, yep, yep. now that are just processed and ready to roll. So and cheap. It's yeah, so that's hard. Right. It makes it very difficult. Yeah. I think it's a great line to say avoid the middle aisles of the supermarket. Stick to the outside of the supermarket because right. all the good stuff's on the outside. The fruit and veg and the meat and the, and the dairy is on the outside. It's those middle aisles that have all the processed packaged food that uh, has all the bad stuff in it. So just stick to the outside. Tell me, what do you think of frozen veggies rather than fresh veggies? Look, 
I think they're uh, you know they're probably not as good, yeah. but they're better than uh, you know better than processed food. A lot of the other stuff. Yeah. yeah, I've actually interviewed over the years a few um, you know dietitians and nutritionists about that, and they always seem to give me an answer that roughly says the process of freezing loses <clears throat> about ninety percent of the goodness. Uh, sorry, ten percent of the goodness. Yep. So there's still ninety yeah. percent as good, which at the end of the day is pretty bloody good especially if you start replacing a lot of stuff like if you're making dishes with lots of meat chuck in some frozen peas and veggies and this that and the other it's so easy it's just a it's a really simple tip to get veggies into your life better if you can go to the grocer but if you can't it's pretty close yep absolutely i would agree with that agree with that so uh, and then the last point is just uh just uh drinks um water is the best drink it's the most natural drink avoid all the uh the sugary drinks because they really you know have huge amounts of uh, of sugar so we're talking soft drinks we're talking fruit juices we're talking energy drinks you know the red bulls and, and so on full of uh, full of sugar as well yeah. as uh, as caffeine and uh, even the sort of you know fancy waters these days mm-hmm. you know are basically water and sugar mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so water and and, and tap water is fine and and drink to thirst you know you don't have to drink huge amounts you know we've, we've been conned really into there's no evidence that says you've got to have you know 12 glasses of water a day you know mm-hmm. for Oh, yeah. Hundreds of thousands of years we've drunk when we're thirsty. I mean, we seem to survive pretty yeah. well. So really, I think, you know, we've, we, we've, we've sort of over-educated um, you know, people in some ways. Yeah. Um, Peter, we've had a, call, uh, a caller asking a question. When cooking with butter, how effective is uh, lactose intolerance? Mm. Or how does it affect lactose mm. intolerance? Yeah, well, I mean, if, if you're really severely lactose intolerant, it can be, it can be an issue. But most people with uh, lactose intolerance, uh, uh, it's mainly milk that has mm-hmm. the lactose. Mm-hmm. You know, they can even have things like uh, yogurt and, uh, and and cream and butter uh, is not as as much of a problem for for lactose intolerance. So I think it's a matter of uh, of, of suck and see really. But uh, most lactose intolerant people can. Uh, cook with you know they're, they're fairly small amounts of uh, butter that you use mm-hmm. for for cooking. But if 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 not that, then uh, then lard or olive oil would be the next best. Do, do you know what Anthony Bourdain uh, said? Uh, you know, in Kitchen Confidential, there were ten reasons why food in a restaurant always tastes better than uh, food at home, and one of them was butter. Butter, yeah, yeah. butter's fantastic. Just a quick question, um, Peter. What about the new nutritionalists or dietitians? Uh, where are we going with them? Are they are they switching over to some of these good messages of yours? Well, some are, some are. But look, it's, it's very difficult. You know, I mean, if, if you've been pushing a certain line that basically fat is evil, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, that was the big mistake we made. You know, we basically decided fat was the enemy rather than sugar was the enemy. And that was 30 or 40 years ago. And it's very difficult. If you've been you know, saying something for 30 or 40 years, some, you know, some wacko doctor comes in and says, you know, you're wrong. And, of course, you say, no, 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 I'm not. So they're, they're, but, look, there are uh, certainly... Shifts. Doctors and, and and a number of uh, dietitians and nutritionists now who are gradually uh, moving over and uh, you know just slowly becoming low carb. Do you know I I tried once I read your book I I tried out this thing um, and so I started having um, avocado and um, more eggs in the morning and you're right I actually didn't get hungry at lunch. I still wanted to have lunch because I, I exercise a lot and I mm-hmm. wanted to replace what I was potentially going to be losing. But I, I think what you say in the book, and look, for me it worked, it might not work for everybody, is that um, you just don't feel as hungry. It satiates no. you. The fa- you yeah. kind of feel more satiated. Fat and, fat protein, yeah, what about yeah, the... Because the bread and the pasta and the rice worries me, you know, chopping it. That's the basis yeah, of I my love life. That. <laughs> and, I, and I had breakfast with you on Friday, yeah. Dr. Yeah, yeah. Mellon. I noticed you did have a bread underneath <laughs> your avocado and egg. Oh, yeah, you've got to have the eggs on something. You've got to yeah. have it on toast. Well, you know, you don't have to. But if you do, you know, sourdough bread is probably better than... Uh, and wholemeal. Well, no, wholemeal, oh. it's... You no know, way, really? they, well, look, you know, they call it wholemeal, but I mean, it's still basically processed. Uh, flour is the, is the issue, and it's still, uh, and, and it's very much uh, processed. So there's not all, you know, it's better, a little bit better than white bread, but to be honest, it's not really wholemeal. You know, it's uh, so it's still got high carbohydrate levels. Mm. Um, okay. So, yeah, look, I think you know, everyone says, oh, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't give up bread. Well, a you can. Secondly, there are low carb breads around. Uh, I bake my own bread but uh, there are you know commercial breads around that are low carb and if you have to have bread you know sourdough is probably the best or one uh, piece yeah. and Fan- not two or three fantastic yeah. but whenever it's hidden underneath eggs it doesn't count no, so that's, that's right. right yeah, yeah. you <laughs> can't see it it's not there <laughs> <laughs> this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au 